Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. To have a law of nature, you have to have a lawmaker. Right? So God was the lawmaker. He legislated the laws of nature, and he gave us the capacity to understand those things. I mean, you read any of the works of the early scientists, read Kepler, read Linnaeus, read Copernicus, and so on. They are very explicit about the fact that they undertook the kind of scientific research they did because they were religious believers, because they believed that God was a reasonable God and that he had commissioned us to understand the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariano Orlandi, Associate Director of the Institute, and I have today the honor to speak with our stellar UT professor, Robert Coons. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Mariano. Thank you. So as a disclaimer, I take the liberty to call you Robert solely because you told me to do so, and <laughs> you are a senior fellow. Actually, Rob the, is fine, even. Oh, wow. <laughs> I might stick with Robert. But, okay. um, so I do happen to see you quite a lot here at the Institute. But yeah. I'm just saying this because if I were to speak in Italian, I would probably still address you in the third person mm. out of reverence for the incredible amount of studies and books and articles you've published. And what I want to tell our audience is that Professor Robert Kunz is a UT professor of philosophy who specializes, in my opinion, in the most complicated areas of philosophy, which are metaphysics and epistemology, philosophical logic, and then philosophy of religion. Rob, he is the author, as said, of two books with Oxford University Press, one with Cambridge University Press. And I think that the last one was the Neo-Aristotelian Perspective. This is on contemporary science, or am I missing? Yeah, I think that's the most recent. Mm-hmm. Any more coming? Yeah, there are a couple more in the works. So I just had this real short one on Lutheranism and Catholicism uh, with Whip and Stock. And, and then I've got, let's see, what else we've got coming? Well, William Simpson and I have got a proposal out there. I hope that I'll have another book where I put together the work I've done on quantum theory and philosophy, which may be coming out later this year. Quantum theory and philosophy. So I, you know, I just said it. You know, it's not what I want to say is also that Professor Kunz is also very good at bringing these difficult concepts down to an audience that, in order for them to be understandable, and this is why he was also leading last semester one of our seminars, one of our compact seminars on the parent divide between right. religion and science. Right. And this is why also we invited him here today to talk about a little more about one of these divides. And what I would like for you to do, Robert, is to try to maybe, you know, simply and in the minutes we have for this podcast, to try to summarize the main arguments that were made during the seminar, which might help us all to have a conversation with people who believe that science proves every sort of religion wrong. So. You can start from wherever you want. All right. Well, for the series, I used Alvin Plantinga's book, Where the Conflict Really Lies. It came out a few years ago. I think it's the best thing out there, actually, on science and religion. And what Plantinga argues, and I think he's absolutely right, is that there's any sort of conflict between religion and science is 
superficial, as he puts it. And in fact, there's tremendous harmony between the two. And where the conflict really lies, and this is the surprising thing, is between atheism and science. That's where there's real tension. So it's almost exactly the opposite of what the conventional wisdom would tell you, right? That science creates some kind of problem for theists. No, it creates a problem for atheists. <laughs> it actually challenges the reasonableness of atheism. And why is that? Well, okay, so there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, first of all, we could look at it historically. Why did science arise in Western Europe, the Western Mediterranean, in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries? Why there and then? Why not China and then in India and then the Mayans and all kinds of other possible civilizations? And I think there's a real consensus among historians here, whether they're religious or not, that the reason was theological. The reason that science arose in Europe when it did was because people in that period of time believed in God. <laughs> that is, they believed in the Abrahamic God of the Bible. They believed that God was reasonable, that he was a God who used mathematics even. They, they often quoted the book of the Wisdom of Solomon, I think it's chapter 11, that God does everything by number, weight, and measure. So they thought God is a mathematical God, right? And he created us in his image. And so he created us and gave us the mandate to understand and to supervise and to you know, regulate the world that he created. And so they believed that the human mind was up to the challenge of understanding the world that God had made. In fact, the very idea of a law of nature, which is really central to the notion of science, this was a theological idea actually invented by Basil of Caesarea back in, I think, the third or fourth century AD. Because, you know, to have a law of nature, you have to have a lawmaker, right? So God was the lawmaker. He legislated the laws of nature, and he gave us the capacity to understand those things. When you read any of the works of the early scientists, read Kepler, read Linnaeus, read Copernicus, and so on, they are very explicit about the fact that they undertook the kind of scientific research they did because they were religious believers, because they believed that God was a reasonable God and that he had commissioned us to understand the world. And if you look at the other places of the world, like the ancient Greeks, why didn't they achieve the kind of scientific breakthroughs that we, we know now? Well, it was because of the dominance of materialism, basically, among the Greeks. If I may just, before you continue, but what do you mean by science as the science that developed yeah, in the 15th right. century? Well, that's a good question. So um, what I have in mind, I guess, primarily is the development of the kind of mathematical physics and chemistry that we discovered that culminated in something like Newton's theories, Maxwell's theories of electromagnetism. So the successful application of mathematics to the natural world and this is something that very few people outside of the Judeo-Christian world would have conceived of as possible. I mean, take Democritus, who's often credited with being a father of science because he invented the atom and so on. Well, actually, mm -hmm. Democritus's philosophy was materialist, and from a scientific point of view, it was a dead end. Because Democritus thought, reasonably enough, that if the world is just a material world with no creator, every atom is probably going to be unique. You know, each atom is going to have its own sort of random shape. And they're all just sort of bouncing around there at that microscopic level. There's no hope we'll ever be able to figure it out. There's not going to be a periodic table, right? There's not going to be any kind of laws of motion, right? They're just going to be randomly shaped tiny particles too small for us to see. Good luck with that, right? <laughs> and so no one tried to understand the scientific world. Now, Plato and Aristotle were the exceptions, I think, because they were theists. Right? <laughs> they believed that there was a mind behind the universe, right? And therefore that there were geometrical structures that could be discovered. 
This wasn't really followed up much by the ancient world until Christianity and Judaism really took hold. And the idea of a divine creator became entrenched in the culture. That's really what you needed in order for science to be possible. Playing the devil's advocate, and especially because just two days ago, I had a conversation about this very topic with somebody who defines himself as an atheist. And it was sort of a difficult conversation. It lasted long and it's probably going to continue. But what would be the argument if what you say is true? What is the counter-argument if someone answers saying, well, it was a necessity for our evolution to develop a brain that would conceive the idea of God as an order, a creator of order, and therefore would develop science. But it's a random necessity of evolution. Yeah, right. I mean, another line one could take is we could say, well, you know, just because God was needed to get science started, do we still need to appeal to God now, right? We could just sort of climb up the God ladder and then throw the ladder away because now we're at the higher kind of scientific level. Science can take care of itself. Right, this is where I think Planning's book is very helpful because Planning argues that not only was religion necessary historically for science to arise, it's also necessary for science to be a reasonable enterprise today. So for us to take science seriously as a source of knowledge, uh, we have to believe still today that our minds were designed by God. This is, well, Planning has a very famous argument called the evolutionary argument against naturalism or against atheism, really. And the idea is that if I suppose that our minds were produced by a mindless evolution, right, unguided evolution with nobody behind it, what does evolution care about, right? As you said, evolution cares about our survival, cares about our being able to get our genes out there as much as possible. That's all it cares about. And so it doesn't care about whether our beliefs about the natural world, especially our sort of scientific beliefs, are true or not. Couldn't care less, right? As long as we succeed in reproducing ourselves, it doesn't matter. So what are the odds, right, that the being good at getting at the truth of advanced mathematics or theoretical physics, what are the odds that that was a really crucial skill to survive on the Sahel in Africa a million years ago, right? Pretty much zero, right? As, as Plantinga says, it's a very, it's only maybe assistant professors of mathematics who actually, who's you know, reproductive success depends on being able to prove theorems, right? <laughs> and so it's very unlikely that our ancestors were in that kind of situation. I mean, even the most basic beliefs that we have, like the belief that there's some liquid up here that I could drink or that there's, you know, potential danger over there, even those beliefs, having argues, wouldn't really be reliable if our minds were produced by evolution. Because all, again, all evolution cares about is that the behavior that's produced is reliably, you know, encourage reproduction. Here's the sort of analogy I like to use. I mean, suppose that this world that I think I'm living in, right, with the microphone and you're talking to me, it's just a kind of video game in my head, right? And by winning this video game in my head, my behavior actually does something completely different, which helps me to survive. It turns out that, you know, the very same survival-enhancing behavior can be produced by an infinite number of possible video games in the head, only one of which is actually true. <laughs> All the others would be fictional, right? And so what are the odds that evolution would produce me in such a way, would produce us in such a way that this inner video game is realistic, it's accurate? Astronomically small, right? The odds are there's no correspondence between the two. I mean, it's interesting that atheists actually understand this problem when it comes to other things like morality and religion and so on, right? So they say, Morale, we all have these beliefs about morality, but those are totally unreliable because evolution just foisted it on us because it helps us to reproduce, right? 
-hmm. Well, the same logic should undermine our confidence in science itself, right? I mean, evolution just foisted on us this belief that there's a natural world out there that we can understand scientifically. Such a baloney right? <laughs> that doesn't correspond to reality at all. So the very same argument that debunks moral beliefs and religious beliefs in an evolutionary context should also debunk scientific beliefs, which means that the atheist doesn't have any reason to believe in evolution itself. <laughs> so the whole thing comes crashing down, right? The whole house of cards ends up being unsustainable. On a personal level, just out of curiosity, it sounds like anyone who goes through you know, studying philosophy and especially in any form of education today at some point is very much tempted to lose any faith in God. So were you at any point tempted to believe in the scientific? Yeah, I mean, when I was an undergraduate, I remember at one point I was thinking, gosh, as you say, the people who do this philosophy are mostly atheists. So if I keep doing this, is this going to put my religious faith at risk? And I thought, well, if there's a God, I'm just going to trust and he's going to help me through this. And if there isn't, I might as well discover that there isn't. <laughs> and so in a way, I've spent the last 40 some years looking for this supposedly killer argument for atheism that all my colleagues must believe in. And I haven't found it. I actually read a lot of atheist literature because I find it very affirming of my faith, right? <laughs> because I think, wow, if this is the best they can do, <laughs> then, uh, then it's pretty uh, inadequate. But why, so why would you say, and this is a, we're just yeah. speculating. But why would you think, because I think that some of the smartest people I know would take these conflicts to be yeah. very real. So I trust you. I'm not, you know, I can't be sure of the existence of God. I can have yeah. my beliefs, but I also, I'm convinced. But why would people that I consider way smarter than me are convinced by the arguments you find unconvincing? So do you think that is a desire of deception? Or is there... Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to what uh, I think a C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That is, you know, we look back. The abolition well, we of look men, back, right? I think that's right. Yeah, we, that's right. We look back at, you know, Abraham and Moses and all these folks. And we thought, gee, these are Bronze Age folks. They didn't understand anything about the, the solar system. They didn't know the composition of water. So why should we trust them on God, right? Uh, whereas nowadays, we're so much smarter, right? Because we've done all these cool technical things. So we should just discard all that old-fashioned stuff, right? We don't follow Bronze Age medicine, why should we follow Bronze Age theology? I think that's the argument. And you hear that quite a bit among, among atheists on a popular level. But I mean, it's the kind of thing that doesn't really stand up, up to five minutes of close examination, right? Because you might think, well, wait a minute, aren't theology and medicine and astronomy somewhat different from each other? And if God is really the source of the information about theology, that is, he's revealing himself, then does it really matter whether he's revealing himself in the Bronze Age or in the nuclear age, right? I mean, it doesn't seem to make a huge difference uh, in terms of the reliability of the information that's given. Now, you might ask, well, why didn't God reveal, you know, quantum mechanics to Moses along with the Ten Commandments? Well, there's plausible reasons why he wouldn't, right? Wow. Not all that crucial for us, to, for our eternal salvation to get quantum mechanics right, whereas 10 commandments are pretty important, right? And maybe God wanted us to figure out quantum mechanics on our own, right? That's part of, he gave us these abilities and wanted us to exercise them and to uncover the secrets of the natural world. Whereas, you know, we couldn't do that for God and for his will, right? So he had to, he had to reveal those things to us directly. So once you think that through, you realize, you yeah, know, there's actually no reason not to trust Revelation from the Bronze Age or the early ancient period, you know, the fact that they didn't have the scientific sophistication we do doesn't matter. You know, I think it's the idea that we're so much smarter now because of our science and technology, and therefore, we're just too proud to submit to these other sources of information. I think that's the bottom line. I right. think so, yeah. 
That's an interesting explanation. Because you mentioned C.S. Lewis, there was another thing that you discussed during one of our meetings. I think it was the first meeting, and really I found it very fascinating. It was about miracles. So would you say a little more? Right, so we spent the first session trying to figure out, you know, where is the conflict between religion and science? Because when you start thinking about it, it's actually pretty hard to find. Um, I mean, a lot of people do think that uh, science and miracles are somehow in conflict with each other. That because we're so scientifically sophisticated, we can't believe in the miracles. We can't believe that Jesus walked on water, that he was raised from the dead at the third day, and so on. Well, but let's think about that, right? So the people in the first century were not as scientifically sophisticated as we were. Maybe some of them believed in unicorns or fairies and so on, right? Because they didn't have the scientific knowledge we do today. But they wouldn't have thought that unicorns or fairies were miraculous. They would have thought they were just part of the natural world. So in order for something to be miraculous, it has to be beyond the capacities of nature. And in order to recognize that something is miraculous, you have to have accurate scientific knowledge. So in fact, of course, the ancient people did have some accurate scientific knowledge. They knew that people, when they were dead for three days, don't come to life again. They know that a solid body can't walk on a body of water, right? And they knew that in a sort of proto-scientific way. And they were right, right? I mean, our modern scientific knowledge tells us, yes, that's right. We know, we know now exactly why a body can't resuscitate after three days of death, right? We know exactly why. We can use theories of hydraulics to explain why a, a human body can't walk on water. But, but that doesn't contradict miracles. That actually just helps us recognize miracles. It puts us in a better position in a way to be able to believe in miracles because now we can more effectively rule out any kind of naturalistic explanation, right? We know now that it wasn't some kind of fluky natural process that enabled Jesus to rise from the dead after three days. We can rule that out scientifically. We know then if he did, it must've been a miracle. It must've been God who did it. Now, does that contradict science? Well, no, because this, the laws of nature just tell us what happens if God doesn't intervene, right? What happens if the natural things are left to their own natural capacities? And that's, not, that's science's job. And it does a good job of doing that. I'm a scientific realist in a big way. I think that science gives us real knowledge about the natural world. But it doesn't tell us that the natural world is a causally closed system. It doesn't tell us that the natural world is everything there is, right? And this is another confusion. Actually, this is maybe another issue, which is some people... I can confuse science with what we might call scientism, where scientism is the view that all human knowledge is scientific knowledge. The only thing that we can know, we can know through science. Right? Again, this is an idea that doesn't hold up to five minutes of philosophical examination, because if I ask myself, okay, how do I know that science is everything? What scientific results prove that science alone is a source of knowledge? There are no such scientific results, right? It'd be impossible. Science would have to prove there's no God, right? In order to rule out the possibility of miracles. And science couldn't possibly do that. Isn't that one of the first things that Aristotle says, I think maybe in the Nicomachean Ethics, when he says that something would be as silly as to try to use the scientific method to defend the first principles, like when you should use the dialectics. Yes, that's right. I think that's right. I think it was Aristotle like already saying, it's just like, that's obvious that you can't do that. Yeah, that's right. I'm trying to remember exactly where he would have said that, but I, that sounds right. I know he says things like, it's wrong to expect the kind of precision that you'd find in geometry and biology, for instance. So Aristotle is very big on recognizing there are different modes of knowledge, right? That are appropriate for different subject matters. And you say to expect science to give us the first principles of morality, for instance, would be a mistake. But then we would get to the evolutionary argument because people could say, Okay, you recognize that, let's say friendship is good. Yeah. But friendship is good because evolutionary speaking, we need friendship and without altruism, our species would not last. 
So science will eventually, because what I hear is that probably the hope that, yeah, well, what you just said, that you cannot prove that science is the only form of knowledge for now. Right. Right. But they would say, but but tomorrow we will prove mathematically speaking or by studying the brain that. Right. What could evolution prove? It could prove that certain kinds of beliefs or behaviors were biologically adaptive for us. Right. But it couldn't prove that they were true or right. I mean, by praying mantises, right, they eat their mate in the process of mating. Now, that was an evolutionary adaptive behavior on their part. But, you know, if there were intelligent praying mantises and they murdered their mates, right, whenever they mated, we would look at that and say, well, that was wrong, morally wrong, whatever evolution might have preferred. This is getting to the point that, you know, you can't you derive a moral ought from what an evolutionary is, right? There's always going to be some kind of a gap there. So, yeah, I don't think science could ever verify morality. That's a separate kind of subject matter that has a different kind of source of information, our conscience or, or divine revelation than, rather than science. Because people that might be interested in this conversation and this divide between religion and science might have heard several times the expression fine-tuning. Yeah. So I would, I would like for you to explain briefly what does that mean? Yeah, so this is another kind of ironic thing, which is that science in the last, especially in the late 20th century, has actually provided, I would say, confirmation of the existence of God. I wouldn't say it proved it, but it's supporting evidence. And of course, the fact of the Big Bang itself, uh, the fact that the universe that we see around us isn't infinitely old, as atheists have always thought. <laughs> that is, it had a beginning, you know, 14 some billion years ago, which raises the question of what caused that beginning. Right? And that certainly suggests that some kind of, some kind of transcendent cause. Uh, there's a book by Robert Jastrow called God and the Astronomers a few years back where he documents the fact that Einstein and all the other scientists fought the Big Bang tooth and nail because they were worried about the theological consequences of the Big Bang. It sounded too much like Genesis 1, I think Einstein says at one point. It does. It does sound an awful lot like Genesis 1. Um, now, again, there are lots of loopholes that atheists can pursue, but the point is that it's certainly, you know, if you're going to try to imagine a cosmology that would fit Genesis 1 really well, Big Bang cosmology would be it. But then in the 60s, they discovered something even more remarkable, which is that if you look at the so-called parameters of the Big Bang, that is the numbers, the kind of unpredictable numbers that go into the Big Bang, like how dense it was, how hot it was, how much bumpiness there was. And also, if you look at the fundamental constants, the relationships between different fundamental forces like gravity and electromagnetism, so they have different strengths, which are compared numerically. And these numbers aren't generated by first principles, like the number pi. They just, we just have to discover them experimentally. Well, anyway, they looked at those numbers, and physicists started playing around with this. They said, well, suppose that gravity were a little bit stronger, a little bit weaker than it actually is. What would happen at the Big Bang? And they discover that in almost all cases, you either get a Big Bang followed immediately by a big collapse, no universe, or you get a big fizzle, which is basically a Big Bang followed by a gigantic hydrogen cloud that expands forever, end of story, right? A very, very boring universe, right? To get an interesting universe like ours with stars and planets and heavy elements, it turns out you have to fine tune all these numbers. They all have to follow within very, very, very precise ranges in some cases in order to produce the universe that we see. Again, exactly what you might predict if God were making the universe, right? Because A, he would want a universe that was interesting, not boring. And B, he might want to do so in a, such a way that would demonstrate his own wisdom and skill, right? And so he does so in a, in a way that requires fine-tuning in order to produce living things. And this is exactly what we see. 
And so this was, creates a real problem for atheists because it's not at all what you'd predict on the basis of atheism. You'd expect the universe we see to be a kind of average random universe. But we know average random universes are boring, lifeless universes, right? So what produces this, the specialness of the universe we see around us? The most popular atheist answer right now is the multiverse, which is that there are a nearly infinite number of unobserved universes out there, all randomly varying, almost all of them boring, lifeless universes, but a few lucky ones like ours have life within it. Well, first thing to notice is, notice how the playing field has been evened, right? 50 years ago, the, the atheists would say, you theists, you want to go beyond the observed universe and invent all this God stuff, right? Now, you know, the atheist says, let's suppose there's an infinite number of unobserved universes out there, right? Well, well now they're the ones that are going way beyond the observed data, actually. And I think uh, just on the basis of Occam's razor, come up with the simplest explanation, God looks a lot better than the multiverse. The other problem with the multiverse is it leads very quickly to a kind of radical skepticism, actually, because if- what, do, what does that mean? Well, it means that if I believe, or if I think there's good reason to think that there are all those infinitely many universes out there, then I have no good reason to trust the empirical data that I actually see. One way to think about this is what's called the Boltzmann brain problem. So Boltzmann was a statistical physicist about 100 years ago, and the Boltzmann brain problem is a problem that was produced by his version of the multiverse, basically, where he thought that what we see around us is a tiny bubble of order in a vast sea of, of disorder. Right? The problem in that kind of picture is, suppose that a brain exactly like mine right now were to form in a, like a little big bang somewhere, right, all by itself and then dissolve into, the, into dust. That would be a very unlikely event, certainly, for a brain just like this to, to be produced in that way. But it turns out that the brain like this, inside my body, in this room, in a solar system, that's astronomically less likely than the, the brain being produced by itself. Right? And so in a multiverse, you would expect zillions more Boltzmann brains than real brains. So. So corresponding, supposing that I'm a real brain in a real body in a real room and so on, right? The number of counterpart brains just like me in that, you know, in that world that are Boltzmann brains, that are illusory, have illusory experiences, vastly outnumbers the number of real brains. And so sitting here now, I have to think, am I a Boltzmann brain? Odds are 99.999 something percent that I am, right? And that I can't trust, therefore, any of the experiences around me. I can't trust my memories. I can't trust my sense data and so on. To quote from another of our fellows, Professor Budzicheski said that at some point he was so skeptical of reality that he started to have doubts about his own existence. Yeah. So I think that's exactly where you so that that course of studies, you know, if you just start following that, that's where you end up what you end up with, so doubting yourself. Yeah, I mean there's a kind of unifying theme here, right? Which is that if we've been created by God, then our faculties are mostly reliable and we can, we can trust what they tell us about reality. On the other hand, if we're the product of a mindless process, especially one that just produces a multiverse of mostly junk, then you can't rely on anything that you, any of our faculties. And so again, this is the point. Science depends upon trust in our faculties, right? And therefore science really requires a theological foundation in order to, to work. There was a passage I really liked, and then maybe you want to say something more about it, but it was when Plantinga was talking about why naturalism is wrong and theism is right, and he talked about simplicity and beauty. 
And what he writes is, this is the sentence of theism with its doctrine of the Imago Dei is relevant in two quite distinct respects. First, insofar as we have been created in God's image, it is reasonable to think our intellectual preferences resemble his. We value simplicity, elegance, beauty. It is therefore reasonable to think that the same goes for God. But if he too values these qualities, it is reasonable to think this divine preference will be reflected in the world he has created. Second, what we have here is another example of God's having created us and our world in such a way that there is that adequatio intellectus adrem. Mm -hmm. We are so constituted that our intellectual success requires that the world be relevantly simple. The world is, in fact, relevantly simple. Yeah. That's that's a great passage. And I've written about the same idea myself. There was a book by Steven Weinberg, who's a fellow professor at UT, uh, atheist, a very famous Nobel Prize winning physicist called Dreams of a Final Theory. And this book is all about the fact that the laws of nature are amazingly simple and elegant. And if they weren't simple and elegant, we would never have discovered them. And he keeps talking about this. And so he says, it's, it's almost as if some great mind were behind these laws of nature. Right? He can't quite bring himself to embrace that, but that seems to be the logic of the position. And in fact, I would argue that again, we can't know that the laws of nature are what we believe them to be unless there really is such a mind behind the laws of nature. Right? So suppose that the laws of nature are all simple, but just by brute chance. Just, we're just lucky that the laws of nature turned out to be simple and, and elegant the way they are. Then for us to jump from law A to law B on the basis of a common simplicity or elegance would be an unreliable inference, right? Because it's just lucky that they're both simple, right? Whereas if A, B, and C, these laws of nature all are simple and elegant because they flow from the same God who prefers simplicity and elegance, then the inference from A to B to C is perfectly reasonable, right? Actually knowledge conferring. So you can't really know the laws of nature are what they are unless the laws of nature have the simplicity they have because that was put into them somehow by a supernatural source like God himself. Otherwise, if we rely on simplicity to pick out the laws of nature, we're relying on something that's unreliable and therefore wouldn't confer, some, wouldn't confer knowledge. So scientific knowledge requires, requires again, God. It's so fascinating. And I mean, I think it's also, it also proves that we tend to agree with someone like I do now, you know, agree with what you're saying because you're making it simple and simple in a way that is simple meaning I recognize some truth behind it. And yeah. when things are too complicated, I doubt that there is truth. Right. That's right. It's when you find a bunch of things that all cohere together, right, that the arguments are convincing. Yeah. And we see that a lot in these arguments for God. And you said you wrote about this where exactly so that we can provide links. Yeah. I mean, probably the easiest way to find it is to go to my website, robcoons.net, and look at the published papers thing of it. It's called The Incompatibility of Naturalism and Scientific Realism. That's the name of the article. Okay. It was in a book called Naturalism, a Critical Analysis, about 2000. But it's a hard book to get a hold of, actually, unfortunately. Okay. All right. We will provide a link on the podcast. And well, I just, I want to thank you very much for this conversation we had. I hope to have you again to talk about other things. It would be also interesting to hear it someday, you know, a conversation between you and maybe the Nobel Prize professor and know how you answer to each other's arguments for and against. 
because we had a semester dedicated to the divides, I think that also our main goal is precisely to generate that conversation mm-hmm. and to have people sit at the same table and talk these things through without believing, oh, you're dogmatic in a way and you're dogmatic in the other way. And right. It will never be a conversation. Because we maybe believe we are relational animals and we also discover the truth through dialogue and that way. So right. I want to thank you again, Professor Kunz, and to our audience, remember to subscribe, to share, and to subscribe also to our newsletter. If you want to know what's happening in the fall, we'll probably have, we'll hope to have, we'll try to have Professor Kunz also give at least a talk. So subscribe and thank you for listening. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.